Well, good morning. We haven't had the chance to meet yet. My name is Zach McLeod. I'm the pastor over worship here at Huddle Bible Church. If you've been here a while, you'll know that I'm not typically standing here during this portion of our worship gathering, but uh, today I get the privilege of worshiping him and his word with you. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, If you were here last week, you know that today marks week two of our Advent sermon series where we are focusing on certain benedictions in Scripture. Benediction simply meaning a pronouncement of blessing over God's people, particularly taking place as they gather as we are right now. Um, And more specifically, we're setting aside this time and this season leading up to Christmas to remember, worship, and behold the one that all the prophets of the Old Testament were looking toward, the Savior they longed for, Christ Jesus. This is the Savior and King whose advent, his coming into the world, makes every blessing of God spoken over his people a tangible reality as all of the promises of God find their yes in him. We see on this side of his coming into the world as an infant king that, as our pastor Bobby taught last week, Jesus' arrival moves benediction from the realm of aspiration to actuality. Like he himself is the blessing and he is the one that applies the blessing. And in continuing our series in Advent this morning, we're going to spend some time in the very beginning of the book of Revelation. Our text for the day is Revelation chapter 1 verses 4 through 6. Now, when you hear someone begin to talk about the book of Revelation, if you're like me, your mind might not immediately jump to Advent. Even though ironically the book of Revelation is packed full of Advent themes of Christ coming into the world, his eminence, the eminence of his kingdom, but instead... Maybe you think of the rapture and a world on fire. Your mind might jump to a left behind book or let's be honest, movie. Or maybe you're reminded of that one family member that always wants to talk about how the end times are upon us. This is it. Rapture's happening tomorrow at every Thanksgiving and they've done that for the last 10 years. Maybe you are that family member. Or maybe it's simply a book in the Bible that you seldom find yourself reading because it seems like there are just too many views on it among sincere believers and it's confusing and hard to understand. Now, if that last one sounds like you, you're in good company. You're not alone in that trepidation. I remember a while back reading a quote attributed to the German reformer Martin Luther on the book of Revelation where he wrote with no small amount of snark that for a book called Revelation it seems to reveal very little. G.K. Chesterton wrote on the book that though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. And another author writes of Revelation that it is a famous book which St. John the Divine concealed all that he knew. The revealing is done by the commentators who know nothing. As you can see, there's a thick cloud of hesitancy and confusion 
this surrounded this book for many, many years among believers. And when you read it, it's not that difficult to understand how such stark differences and in interpretation can arise from the mystery it clearly contains, what scripture would call those hidden things that belong to the Lord. But church today, instead of spending time speculating on those hidden things that we're not to know yet, I'd like for us to spend some time beholding what is clearly revealed. What is revealed in this book called Revelation is blessing, hope, encouragement, grace, and peace for God's people. And if there's any impression on this book I'd like to leave you with by the end of our time and his word today, from just looking at three verses in its opening greeting, it's that this is an epistle meant to encourage you to rest and live in his sovereignty, not a checklist for figuring out when you should start construction on your underground bunker. Though if you do build one, I'd love to see pictures. That would be cool. Like last week, we beheld the new and the old concealed in Christ's face shining upon his people in the blessings of numbers, in the blessing of number six. But on this Lord's day, we get to see the old and the new revealed Revelation, chock full of Old Testament allusions and imagery, is a crescendoing ending to the whole of Scripture that fixes our eyes on the Lamb of God that was slain, yet is standing, unshaken, fatal scars and all, receiving worship forever and ever, his presence being revealed as the greatest blessing of all. Here, we so clearly see the advent of Christ as God's plan all along. That being said, if you were able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. These are the words of God. Revelation chapter one, we're going to start in verse four and end verse six. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you right now for your blessing over this time and your word. Your word is powerful. I just ask for boldness as I, as I preach your word that I would preach it accurately. I ask for your Holy Spirit to come and do what only he can do in this time of worship to you, considering your word. Lord, only you can soften hearts. Only you can open eyes to see the beauty and the truth of your word and of your kingdom, Lord. So we ask that. Come, Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, the first thing to note about this epistle is that it is an unveiling. It's an unveiling. Maybe you've heard Revelation referred to as the apocalypse of St. John, depending on what theological circles you might have run in. Uh, The word apocalypse in the Greek translates to Revelation, which is the title it's most popularly known by now in our circles. Or it can be translated as an unveiling or unfolding of things not previously known. This book is a revelation from Christ himself written to seven churches in Asia Minor. If you like geography, that's in modern-day Turkey. 
And this, it's written through the Apostle John. It's really important to note here that while John is the writer, Jesus is the author. The seven particular churches that Jesus addresses in this epistle are churches that are either in tribulation or soon to be facing it. Now, regardless of which dating, the earlier or the latter that one might favor of this epistle, it's clear that these churches were facing some problems both external and internal. And if the earlier date is to be favored, that would put the writing of this epistle shortly before the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the second temple in AD 70, making Christ's words of encouragement and blessing in this letter very timely to a church facing in some areas persecution from a mad emperor named Nero and soon to be dealing with the fallout of Rome's deadly response to Jewish rebels in the siege of Jerusalem a few short years later. Once again, these are words of blessing to a church that is either hurting or is about to be. And while this letter is not to us, I believe it's very much for us today. I say all of this for two reasons. Number one, I want you to understand what's going on when this passage was written and what these words from the Lord Jesus would have meant to a church on the edge of political upheaval and tragedy. And secondly, I want you to see that this is not just a blessing that the church embraces when skies are blue, inflation's down, gas is 99 cents a gallon, can you imagine? And all our troops are home for Christmas. This blessing was written to a church in uncertain times. This blessing stands firm when nations fall. This is a blessing that's yours today when you face loss that breaks your heart and it's no less true when the church comes under fire. On the contrary, this blessing shines the brightest when all the other lights go out. It shows up when our false confidence in the peace and security wrought by our own hands is ripped away and we see our unmistakable need for the grace and the peace of the triune God. And that's where we begin in verse four. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, if you're familiar with any of the other New Testament epistles, you might have noticed that John begins with the standard Christian blessing of grace and peace. But he very quickly breaks away from the standard blessing when it comes to whom he refers to the grace and peace coming from. We have from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, usually the grace and peace in the standard Christian blessing of an epistle are listed as coming from the Father and the Son. Two sources with theologians like Jonathan Edwards suggesting that the Holy Spirit is himself present and not absent as the grace and the peace being the one that proceeds from the Father and the Son. But here, John explicitly conveys a blessing from the triune God. But before we get to the one this blessing is flowing from, I think we should first look at the blessing, grace and peace, grace and peace, which makes us ask, what is grace and peace? I think it's so easy to flippantly read through this greeting without putting any thought toward 
what those two words mean. We hear them used so much within the walls of the church that maybe some of us will be incredibly familiar with both and even using them frequently in our conversations that are laced with Christianese would be hard-pressed to find either term biblically. Pastor John Piper, in a response to this very question on the meaning of grace, broke it into two categories within Scripture that I thought were very helpful for this passage. Grace as undeserved favor and grace as power for living. I'll say that again. Grace as undeserved favor and grace as power for living. We can see a clear example of grace as undeserved favor in Romans 3.24 where the Apostle Paul writes, We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is being given something precious from God that we do not deserve. We have no merit that makes us good candidates to receive this great gift of salvation in which we live our lives, yet it is lavished on us. Nonetheless, along with blessing after blessing after blessing, this is glorious grace. A grace that when realized draws us into his precious presence and draws out thankfulness to the God that treats rebels better than we know how to treat our friends. And then we have grace's power for living. We know that the kingdom of God consists not of talk alone, but of power. So we deeply need this grace. Paul, the apostle of grace, writes in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This grace is the power to persevere. It's the gift of good works we read about in Ephesians 2.10, prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. We need this grace of God in our lives to live out our faith and to cling faithfully to his word. We need this grace to live a life pleasing to him. And then we have peace. Now, peace we might be more familiar with definitionally, uh, because we know what life is like when we don't have it. More is going out than is coming into the bank account. When the doctor calls you about coming into the office after some test results came back, the absence of peace is almost impossible to miss in our lives. Yet here in this benediction, we're met with ultimate peace. Peace that transcends, it rests above every situation. The word that John is employing here for peace is the same word that the Apostle Paul uses in his greetings. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew word shalom. Pastor Ryan Hawkins writes regarding the significance of this word that God's shalom is one of the main themes of the Old Testament. The Israelites were redeemed as God's people through God's covenant, receiving God's hesed, covenantal love so that they could be a holy nation and worship God, all so that they might experience and share God's shalom and everything as it should be peace. What was lost at the fall was shalom. And the final restoration of all things was not just to be a return to God, but a return to shalom. This is the peace of God that covers us in all circumstances. This is not a peace that relies on good health, 
finances, success at work, or any number of things the world strives for to feel okay. This is shalom here spoken over you by the very words of God. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. The voice that speaks from on high, even when everything around us is crumbling, behold, I am making all things new. And we get to live in this peace now. Get to have it now. So in this greeting of grace and peace, we see unmerited favor, power to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, and peace that covers us with holy assurance of his promises. And then we see who this grace and peace is from, and it gets even sweeter. From him who is and who was and who is to come, This phrase, is, was, and is to come, is a longer, more indirect, yet very poignant way of referring to the Father. It's the Father. It's a title that communicates something about him, and what it communicates about him are attributes that theologians call incommunicable. Incommunicable. These are attributes that God alone possesses. This is the God that is unchanging and eternal. And not just eternal in the sense that he always will be, but eternal from the past as well. He always has been. There's never been a moment in history and creation that he has not presided over sovereignly. He always has been, he always will be, and he is right now. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now the seven spirits here refer to the one and only Holy Spirit. There are not seven Holy Spirits, there's one Holy Spirit. Now, there's much room to lean into the mystery here about what exactly is meant by the number seven in this passage. Like, for instance, if you were to go pick up a commentary after service, uh, and and then you picked up a couple more, probably in each one of those, there might be a couple different suggestions. Uh, There are many implications, I believe, meant by this. I tend to think that it's a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, so maybe this will be helpful for you in understanding this. It's written in Isaiah 11, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Explaining this passage in Isaiah in relation to our passage in Revelation 1-4, Pastor Douglas Wilson in his commentary on Revelation writes, The Messiah will come and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. One, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, two more. The spirit of counsel and might, two more. And then we have the spirit of the knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, two more, seven in all. And finally, we come to the son, the shoot from the stump of Jesse and branch that bears fruit. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. We now come to behold in the text the image of the invisible God, given three titles, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. With the title of faithful witness, we are reminded of Christ's prophetic station being one that reveals in John 118, 118, Christ says of himself that no one has ever seen God, 
The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He being one with the Father is the faithful witness and that all he reveals about his Father is true and he is faithful in proclaiming the kingdom of God all the way to the cross and to the tomb. He's the firstborn of the dead because he didn't stay in that tomb. Psalm 1610, for telling the resurrection of Christ says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He's alive today. He's alive today. And he's the firstborn of the dead because his resurrection is the first of many. His resurrection was the down payment and is the assurance of your own bodily resurrection to eternal life if you would come to him in faith today confessing with your mouth that he is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And finally, church, he is the ruler of kings on earth. I want you to see the present tense here. He is the ruler of kingdom of kings on earth. Certainly, we look forward to a day in the future when every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yet this is a yearning for the day when all of mankind confesses what is already true. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is reigning today above every authority, every president, every king, every dictator, every congressman and woman all have authority only in so much as the King of kings grants them. And today, church, I'll tell you, as Psalm 110.2 says, he is reigning in the midst of his enemies. To the enemies that bend the knee, he grants the right to become sons and daughters of God. But in regard to those that with rigid necks will not bow, but instead distort and suppress the truth of his sovereign reign on high, the father says to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He is right now the ruler of of kings on earth. His kingdom is not of this world, yet it's very much in it now. It's taking more and more ground every day and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So here in the very beginning of this astounding blessing, We are introduced to the one it all flows from. This is the triune, all-powerful, self-existent God that we receive grace and peace from, a grace and peace that flow forever from him, inexhaustible. We see here that true grace and peace come from the triune God. True grace and true peace come from the triune God. And in the midst of this blessing to the churches from the Father and the Spirit and the Son, John, in an outburst of praise writes, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Guys, I think that John has the correct response to this blessing, and it's worship. He worships the Lord Like just picture in your mind's eye, church, I'll give you a moment. Picture this in your mind's eye. This mighty God that commands history, worthy of fear and reverence. He lives in unapproachable light and he is holy, holy, holy. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. He makes the mountains tremble at the slightest hint of his presence and has sovereignly determined the number of stars and the heavens and the hairs on your head. He needs nothing from you or me. 
Yet to our astonishment, he's not far off, he's near. He is not disinterested in our lives. He loves us. He loves his bride. We who had gone astray and did not seek him, we who set up our own gods and blasphemed his name, yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there we see the pinnacle, the X that marks the spot, the proof of his love. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. Like if you were in Christ this morning, you see he's washed away your sins. That's the imagery in this passage here. You know, you've heard that hymn, washed by the blood of the lamb. He's washed away your sins. You're free. You're no longer under sin's dominion. Like on the cross, he bore the penalty for your every transgression. He died the death that you deserved after living a life that you could not in perfection and holiness. And on the cross, he took your sin and gave you his righteousness. He became a curse. It's the imagery in 2 Corinthians 5. He became a curse that you might become the righteousness of God. What an unfair trade. Saving us from a curse so terrible, it's hard to imagine in our minds all of its horrifying implications. He also saved us too more blessings than we could ever count. So thank God we have eternity to try. Verse 6 shows us what he saved us to and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. He's made us a kingdom of priests. Christ being both the king of kings and the great high priest is the head of a kingdom of many priests. Now before we miss this detail, Uh, what's described here is not a kingdom that has priests. This is a kingdom made up of nothing but priests. This means that you, Christian, royal subject of the kingdom of God, you're a priest. What does that mean? I hope you're asking that question. Maybe that's the first time you've heard something like that. Well, it means that Christ has come and has fulfilled the priestly role of the old covenant through his life, his death, in his resurrection, so that there is now only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Jesus Christ. The priests of the old covenant were a shadow of which Christ is the substance. They had to offer sacrifices every day, yet Christ being the all-sufficient sacrifice, the perfect and spotless lamb of God, offered up himself as the sacrifice that would once and for all cover all who call upon his name. Hebrews 10 says this, starting in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be, put, should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You're a priest. 
a representative of God to all the world in the likeness of the great high priest that grants you access to God in which you can come boldly before the throne of grace. He purchased that for you with his blood. He bought it. When he said it is finished on that cross and that temple veil that concealed the holy of holies and separated it from the world was torn into the priesthood moved from a small fraction of his covenant people to all of his covenant people. His heavenly presence would no longer dwell specially in a room, in a temple, but in many living temples that make up the great temple, the body of Christ, the church. I'm looking at many living temples right now. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And 53 days after Christ said, it is finished, the Holy Spirit of God was poured out upon his people on the day of Pentecost, fulfilling what the prophet Joel had prophesied some several hundred years prior, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and we see that so clearly in this priesthood of all believers. And church, this is what it was always meant to be. Like the, Le- the Levitical priesthood most of us likely think about when we hear the word priest was only instituted because of sin, because of the separation that began at the garden. And it was not the first priesthood God ordained. In fact, the first man assigned as a priest was not Aaron, but Adam. The first man assigned as a priest was not Aaron, but Adam. It was Adam he created in his image to care for his creation and to walk with him in perfect communion, to be his representative, his vice regent in the world, to be a priest to God. From the very beginning, God created mankind to be priests. Now, maybe you're seeing with me, and I hope you are, how the heart of this priesthood of all believers is the restoration of all things. It's not a new idea to return to an ancient order. This was the plan all along. He's taking us back to the garden, to paradise. He's restoring what our sin shattered. And if you remember from just a little bit ago, our look, our time looking at the word shalom used at the beginning of this blessing in Revelation. And then also remember that this peace is what the righteous of Israel were all looking toward the day when they could be a truly holy nation and worship God and receive his shalom. Then maybe you can see with me that this is the fulfillment of it all. It's all in Christ. It's all fulfilled in Christ. Where the striving of man's own efforts to achieve holiness and be acceptable to God failed time and time again. The advent of Christ, his coming, has now made a way. And he did it through the power of his blood. He has made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. 
He's restoring everything. Adam and his bride had the blessing of the precious and priceless presence of the Lord before their sin broke everything, evicting them from the garden and separating them from God, making many daily sacrifices for sin necessary. But Christ has now restored this communion as a sufficient sacrifice for all sin, making us right with God once and for all on the cross. Like he was born in a manger to be nailed to a cross to reconcile you and me to his father. We couldn't go to God, so he sent his son to us. He has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and father. Like this means that if you are in Christ, his Holy Spirit dwells in you and in me and is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He's restored our walk with God. And though we walk with him now in a world that looks nothing like the paradisal garden that we know Adam and Eve once enjoyed, his Holy Spirit assures us that it is only a matter of time until we will walk with him in a world restored. Where every wrong is made right. There are no more tears or sorrow. Behold, I am making all things new. His spirit assures us that we will one day behold him in a world that this present reality is only a shadow of. Yet still for all of that world to come's beauty, the true reward of heaven will be that the lamb of God is there. His presence is the prize. He's our inheritance through an astounding grace that we never deserved. He's restoring us back to himself. He's bringing the prodigals back home with a ring on our finger and royal robes on our backs washed in the blood of the lamb. Until that day, we stand before that throne and see him face to face ministering to him as priests in eternity. Church, there's work to do on this earth and this present darkness as priests to God. And this work, and I want you to see this, this work is part of the blessing that Christ came to give us. The work is part of the blessing. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As one that has received this blessing of grace and peace, salvation and priesthood through Christ's blood, Christian, priest to God, there is a call on your life to magnify his name and to make him known. All for his glory, his reputation as one glorious and full of splendor, worthy of reverence and fear, and his dominion, his kingdom gathering more and more ground, and the nations that are all his inheritance already seeing the one they pierced through the proclamation of his gospel and wailing on his account, repenting and bending their knee. As one blessed, you are called to bless like this might be surprising for you to hear it phrased this way, but you're a minister. Regardless of your vocation, you're nine to five. There's ministry that the Lord has called you to. Priests minister. They bring offerings before the Lord in worship, and they tend and care for the things that God cares about. And as priests yourselves, I'd like to, in closing, leave you with three main categories of ministry you have a calling to. Our ministry as priests to God is threefold. Ministry to God, ministry to his people, and ministry to the world. Number one, you have a calling to minister to the Lord in worship. That's your calling. 
priest minister to the Lord. We see this language of ministering to the Lord used in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8, when the Levites were set apart for God to minister to him and bless his name. And church, you likewise have been set apart to be a holy nation, to offer spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. The apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5 writes, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Your entire life is meant to be an offering to him, poured out because of his great love for you and the kindness and richness of mercy that you've been blessed with. Maybe you're wondering, like, what does that mean practically? What does that mean for me? Well, it means that in all we do, all in all you do, do it for the Lord. Do it all for the Lord. One more practical tip. If you can't do something and in good conscience say of that thing, to God be the glory, don't do it. Don't do it. Our lives are to be filled with spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus. And church, there's nothing worth more than his presence. Something may feel like sacrifice now to either say yes or no to, but his presence and his pleasure are worth so much more than we can possibly imagine here and now. Through the blood of Christ, the washing of the blood of the lamb, we can be men and women that bless God's heart instead of grieving it. So much of the fallen world does every moment. He's freed us from our sins by his blood. We don't have to live under sin's tyranny anymore. You're free. So in all you do, do it as for the Lord and as an act of worship. Obey him, live a prayerful life, and spend regular time in his word. That means walk with him. Walk with him. There's blessing in blessing the Lord. Number two, you're called to minister to his church. Priests minister to his people. Unfortunately, this call is so easily lost in the West. It's often very easy for a Christian to come to believe that ministry is just the job of pastoral staff and maybe a handful of other volunteers. It's become all too easy to treat the church like a spectator sport. But you just won't find that idea anywhere in his word. It's not there. Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It goes on in verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually individually, as he wills. Like, I hope this is encouraging to you that you don't just have a calling, Christian. You have a supernatural gifting to exercise that calling. Sure, you've probably heard it said that he doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called, and I think that just about sums it up. Like, God doesn't just look at outward appearances as we so often do. He looks at the heart. And because of that, his calling on your life might confound you. 
might not make any sense to you. You might think that maybe some wires got crossed and you heard him talking to someone else, but brothers and sisters, the question is not whether you have a gift and a calling. It's what is that gift and calling? His Holy Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. That's the second calling on your life. Actively, actively be a part of the body of Christ, that she would be a bright light to a dark world and salt in a world that is tasteless and bland. If you like me yearn for the church to be that city on a hill that all the nations look to and see the evident power of God resting on and in her, then I encourage you, step out in obedience today. Find out how you're going to tangibly play a part in that and then just do it. Do it. There's blessing in blessing his people. And finally, number three, you are called to minister to a world lost in darkness. The order of my list here on, is on purpose, by the way. So often our minds jump immediately to getting people in the doors of our church and sat into a seat for service. But church, if when they walk in these doors, they're not met by the radically transformed people of God, what are we inviting them to? Like if they don't see worship happening here, then how in the world are we going to get them to behold the Lamb of God that's worthy of worship for all of eternity? If we're not ministering to him here at Hutto Bible Church, and if we're not serving his bride as an act of worship here at Hutto Bible Church, then what are we even inviting them to? Because I've got to say, they can catch a way better concert on Friday night. I can say that, I'm the worship guy. (laughs) The church, it's when each member of his flock steps into their ministry to him and to his people, the church shines the brightest in a dark, dark world. It's an obedience to the call of a personal walk with Christ and to serving one another and participating in his church that we position ourselves properly for our third calling. And that's that priests minister to the world in evangelism. Priests minister to the world in evangelism. Maybe you're asking, how do we know that? Well, it's because the great high priest says so. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Church, he is the ruler of kings on earth. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, yet there's a world outside of these doors that doesn't recognize that. As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. He ordains both the ends and the means. In Christian, you're the means. You're the means. It's in Christ and through his love and by his blood that you have been saved and made a member of a royal priesthood to worship him, to care for his people, and tend and to tend to a world that needs him just as desperately as you do. All for his glory and his dominion. We're blessed by him not only that we would experience his blessing, but that we may be a blessing. And it's all because Christ has come to us that that's even able to be a reality. 
As we said earlier, guys, Jesus' arrival moves benediction from the realm of aspiration to actuality. He moves it from what's hoped for to what is. Like church, you no longer have to just sit back and wish for a better world. Like if you want the world to be a better place, if you want to leave a better country to your children, scripture's clear, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There's blessing and blessing the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can't, we can't do any of this without you. We're powerless without your Holy Spirit. We need your presence to work in us, to work through us. Lord, I just pray right now that Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do in pulling on, on hearts, showing each member what you've gifted them with, Lord. Would that be something that's thought about after this time, that we wouldn't just be an event people, that we go to an event and that was great, but we'd be a doing people. We don't just hear it, we put it into practice, Lord. Would that be true of us here at Huddle Bible Church? That there would be a royal priesthood that's operated so clearly here, that we would be a blessing to the city of Huddle, city of Taylor, the city of Round Rock. People would just have a notion that, man, something different is going on there. Something that doesn't make sense, but something holy. God is there in their midst. Lord, we ask for that blessing. We ask that you would empower us to be that church. Come before you with this request in Jesus' name. Amen.